This is Pamela Slim, author of The Widest Net, Unlock Untapped Markets and Discover New Customers Right in Front of You, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Pamela Slim to talk about her new book, The Widest Net, Unlock Untapped Markets and Discover New Customers Right in Front of You, published by McGraw-Hill. Pamela Slim is an author, business coach, and former corporate director of training and development at Barclays Global Investors since 2005. Pamela has helped thousands of entrepreneurs around the world start, sustain, and scale their businesses. She has worked with companies serving the small business market, such as Progressive Insurance and Constant Contact. In 2016, Pam and her husband, Daryl, co-founded Ke Main Street Learning Labs in Mesa, Arizona, a grassroots community-based think tank for small business economic acceleration. Pamela is the author of Escape from Cubicle Nation, From Corporate Prisoner to Thriving Entrepreneur, and Body of Work, Finding the Thread that Ties Your Story Together, both published by Penguin Portfolio. And Interesting facts. She is a certified home organizing show addict, and her favorite movie of all time is Moonstruck. Snowflakes are perfect. Stars are perfect. Not us. Not us. We are here to ruin ourselves and and to break our hearts and love the wrong people and and die. Pamela, congratulations on the widest net and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. I am so happy to be here and even happier after hearing that clip from my favorite movie, Moonstruck. Great. Well, your book was a lot of fun to read and I I really enjoyed it. And you know, some of the concepts in your book reminded me of some of the things that were in John Jantz's book, uh, The Ultimate Marketing Engine, which was a recent uh, interview on the show about the ecosystem and uh, all the referral partners, and we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, and I was so excited to see the book endorsed by several people, that, that several authors I've had the honor of, of interviewing, like uh, Guy Kawasaki and Ann Hanley and Shama Hyder, Dory Clark. Rohit Bhargava, Jay Bear, and and then you didn't stop there. In the book, you mentioned even more folks like Seth Godin and Tamsin Webster and Skip Miller. 
So it was uh, it was like a, a greatest hits <laughs> of seeing it, all these it, names. That's right. It's fun in writing a book about ecosystems and, and community to be able to include so many beloved members of my own community who have been a big influence to me. Terrific. So I think I got even more out of it because I've you know, been able to read uh, the books of all these different folks and just... Uh, yeah, you know, that's why I do the podcast. I just one of the one of the many reasons. Now let's get into uh, the beginning here. In, in the introduction, you write that you started to notice that businesses grow in direct proportion to their ability to connect to the ecosystems surrounding their ideal customers, and that you saw your clients' sales and profits accelerate quicker, more strategically, and with less frantic effort than that espoused in the, quote, sleep when you're dead hustle culture. (laughs) I love that. And then um, quoting uh, from the introduction, you write, the advice I share is not a hypothetical example based on a cool idea I had in the shower one day. It is based on decades of real work with real people. It comes from helping thousands of clients all around the world start, grow, and scale their businesses. I have spent the last six years codifying this approach into a method, testing it with entrepreneur groups around the country, with my clients, and in our small business learning lab in Mesa, Arizona. I've watched it activate millions of dollars in sales, generate scores of partnerships, and strengthen the visibility and thought leadership of my clients. The result is the widest net method, or WNM for short. This book teaches you the method, how it works, and how to apply it to your own business to activate a flood of new customers. While the focus of the book is on entrepreneurs and small businesses, the concepts apply to any size organization that's striving to develop deeper and more authentic relationships with their customers and to find new customers in places they may have never looked before. (laughs) And then, Pamela, just so you know, the way you've written this book you have no idea how easy you have made it for a podcaster to interview you. (laughs) Because right below that, you write, I am not going to make you read the whole book to understand the core ideas. Here are the highlights. (laughs) And then then you've got, and I did read the book. I I want full credit for that. But you've got 10 bullet points, and I'm going to steal from some of these as, as we talk about this, because it was like, and you know, then I read these, and then I go read the book, and it's like, wow, it's exactly like she said. So I love that. Well, it's funny being a coach and somebody who has been working with folks for a long time, and my overall background, probably for the last twenty-five years that I've been in business, is really in training and development. And a truth that I know, shocking, I'm sure, to some of your readers, is that not everybody reads an entire book. And more and more these days, people might pick it up, they might order it, they might dig into one chapter, never never pick it up again. And so in as many ways as possible, the way that my instructional development mind looks at things, I want to make it easy, I want to make the ideas clear. And being a coach that likes to actually see people take action, I like to provide guidance at the end of each chapter. So it's really the way I've written all three of my books. Oh, yeah. Well, it's extremely practical. Even even this knuckleheaded podcaster starting writing ideas down about his own business in some of the, you know, the worksheet sections you have there. But pro tip for the uh, for the authors out there, when you do put a summary like that at the beginning, I think it actually makes people want to read the rest of the book. So I don't know. I maybe that was a ninja mind trick you were pulling on me. I don't. I don't know. Always, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, let me just jump into a, a few of these. One of them is, um, well, shoot, let me 
let me quote from a couple of these bullet points. Uh, one is point number one. You write, before you build a business, you have to make sure that it solves a problem we're solving, <laughs> a problem that people will pay to solve, and a problem that you personally desire to solve. And this is where you talk about you know values and mission statements. And I, you know, mission statements, if I had to guess, are probably some of the most misunderstood things in business. You know, maybe they go up on a plaque on the wall in the CEO's office, but not people uh, under understand that. Can you talk about what goes into creating a mission uh, in the context of your widest net method? Because this seemed enormously helpful and and somewhat demystifying as it relates to this, you know, somewhat mysterious mission statement talk. That's right. And I know a lot of folks, especially if they have been in corporate environments for a long time, may be desensitized or shall we say cynical when it comes to exercises around mission because it has often been implemented in such a way that doesn't feel real and Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel meaningful. In the work that I do with clients every day, one thing that I've learned, and it absolutely is true for myself as well, is that you really do have to have that deeper connection, a deeper emotional connection, a deeper intellectual connection with the the, the focus of your business, and in particular, like why you're doing it, what problem that you're solving, because the journey is so difficult. It really is something over time. And it doesn't matter if you're at the very early stage of just launching your business or midway scaling it. Everybody I've worked with at different stages will tell you maybe the nature of the problems change a bit. You might have some more resources. You might have a bigger team in order to solve them. But there always are going to be challenges as you're growing your business. And so fundamentally, for you as the person who's really driving the business and putting the energy behind your marketing efforts, you have to be really clear about why it's important. It's funny, it seems like the sentence you read back is the most straightforward thing in the universe. Like, of course you have to make sure your business solves a problem we're solving that people will pay for. You might be surprised at how often somebody comes up with an idea, it sounds really cool, sometimes gets investors and and pitches it in such a way that it sounds really compelling, but it actually has no merit at all. It's not something that actually solves a problem that people care about. I'm always shocked sometimes hearing behind the scenes and fascinated, like, how did you get people to give you millions of dollars when you weren't even sure that this thing was going to work or if it was even a thing? Um, so that part of it, when you when you really are defining, in particular for the widest net method, what it is that you're focusing on and what bigger problem you're solving. That's really the context for the mission and where it comes from is you're looking for something that usually is bigger than just the work that you do yourself. So for example, for me, I'm extremely passionate about strengthening the economy and in particular the small business economy because I don't like people to feel economic insecurity. Mm -hmm. That feeling of, oh, how am I going to pay rent? What happens if I lose my job? I just really don't like people to have to stress about that because it's so core to quality of life and everything else. Mm -hmm. And so, in looking at that as an example of a mission that I really like to connect to, to do something about, it has to be bigger where there are other people who are also contributing to solving that problem. And as we'll probably talk about as we move through this conversation, if you don't really clearly define like what problem you're solving and what mission you're on, it will be really impossible to find out who are the other players 
who you can partner with. It, it, it's true, though. People fall in love with their product or they fall in love with their service. It's what they want to sell. And there was a book on the show a couple of years back by Jill Soley uh, called Beyond Product. She's a Silicon Valley marketing executive. And it, she talks quite a bit about product market fit, <laughs> which is kind of what we're talking about here. Yes. And she talks to these uh, you know, venture capital funded companies, engineers, and Almost every week, someone says to her, I have a, what I think is a great product. Why am I not minting money? <laughs> and it's some of the things that you're, you talk about here. And you've actually got um, you know, these, these four pieces of you know, your, your mission. And I just uh, – you had me at number one. It is centered on your customers. I tell you, you know, I've read a few hundred of these books. <laughs> the thing that keeps coming back are the companies that are more focused on their customers and understand them better, even just a little bit better than their competition, always seem to win. And it also then it goes on to talk about it's deeply rooted in the problem you are solving <laughs> or the aspiration you are enabling. You hear how that's still sort of about the customer, listener? You know, it's a problem that your ideal audience views as critical and it connects with a deeper root in you as the founder. Let's talk for just a minute about the values, though. And, you know, in, in determining your values, you have this concept I, was, I had not seen before. Can you explain this concept of, always and never in helping to to point you towards what your true company values are. Yes, this comes from my dear friend, Greg Hartle, who is a very seasoned entrepreneur who's started, grown, sold multiple multi-million dollar businesses, the kind of person I always look at sideways because I'm like, how did you just figure it out so easily? Uh, he's, he's an amazing person. And we were having a conversation one day about ethics in business. And I was asking him, what what are some specific tools that you've used in your businesses to, because we share a passion for having ethics and integrity in running your business and also in the work that you do with clients. And he described a tool, which is called the always and never list that he said, any kind of business that he founds, or in some cases buys and takes over with the team, they really create these always and never lists. And so you can begin to, to say, for us as a company, what are what is something that we are always going to do? And not surprising, in the example you gave before, I will always center the customer. I will always make sure that everything I'm building in business is about solving a problem for the customers I care to serve. Mm-hmm. I, of course, factor in, I want to have a good, happy, healthy life and plenty of money in my bank account to take care of my family and so forth. But that's an example of things that you know you always will do. I will always tell the truth. I'm not going to lie to somebody and and tell them something that's not true. I will always own up if I make a mistake to acknowledge what it is that I did and, you know, follow up promptly and apologize as examples. And then Mm -hmm. there can be things on the never side. As you do this exercise at first, through time, you might start with that list and then put it to practice. And I know in different economic stages that all of us have lived through throughout the decades, you could say, you know, I will never work with XYZ company, maybe that focuses in this area, or Mm -hmm. I'll never work with a client that talks to me this way. And then sometimes you can be in a situation where you're like, 
I literally need to work with this client in order to pay my mortgage. And so is this really in my always or never list? Or is this something that I just try to abide by? But that maybe I have a, a deeper always, which is I will always make sure that I have secured a livelihood for my family, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So it really is an evolving list. And another term that Greg uses in this context is it helps us to understand our own hypocrisy line, especially when you're going through different parts of business and you're growing and expanding. He argues that as we're we're navigating this, we end up bumping up against this hypocrisy line like, ooh, am I really selling out if I end up doing this thing, if I market this way, if I send these many emails, or is it something that's a natural part of my growth? So when you write it down, it helps you to really diagnose and understand what's truly important. Mm, It's so clear. Let's go to, uh, I can't resist, these bullet points. (laughs) Bullet point two. And, and you know, if you only do the first two, that the one we just discussed and this one, if you can't listen to the rest of the show, <laughs> you're going to be doing really well because I see companies struggle with this all the time. And maybe that's why it's so early in your book. But you write, you have to know how to describe and recognize the specific characteristics of the perfect customer for your business. Uh News alert, not every prospect is a good prospect. Um, so the one thing that surprised me in the book is you start off by saying, stop focusing first and foremost on like a, a demographic, like of a target audience, almost like um, the kind of thing I would hear back when I was uh, an ad guy. They would be talking about like uh, men 18 to 34, that type of thing. And I, I found that surprising, but I, I'm guessing you still see a lot of businesses start to define who their perfect customer is by looking like at a broad swath of demographics. So you could talk about that, but then what what should they do instead or, or before the getting into that? I, I do see a lot, it a lot. And I literally have had situations sometimes where I might ask somebody who their ideal customer is and they're like, I've really done a lot of thinking and I've narrowed it down. And so it's women. <laughs> You know, and I just kind of sit or, back and I try to keep myself composed, like, okay, that's yeah. that's a start. Can they fog a mirror? Yeah. <laughs> Can we get a little more specific? Right, right. So my my approach to audience has been really, really shaped by Susan Beyer from Audience Audit, who I reference specifically in this chapter. And she and I have known each other for years. We've done deep work together. She works with a lot of my clients. She's a an attitudinal segmentation researcher. And so for her trade, she's always working with digital marketing agencies and the brands that they serve to really find out like why are their customers actually purchasing from them? And mm-hmm. she has a really clear point of view that it's just influenced me in such a positive way um, that links directly back to what we talked about in the mission, which is really describing your customer first by a problem, challenge, or aspiration that they have. Mm-hmm. So in the early days of Escape from Cubicle Nation, for example, that was my first blog and my first book, I didn't say I will only work with 55-year-old corporate employees who want to leave and start a business. I would describe it at a networking party or anywhere that where I meet somebody. When they asked me what I did, I said, I, I work with people who are in corporate jobs who really want to leave and start a business. And it's a, it's a really simple thing to say, but immediately it gives people a much better anchor of, oh, that's me. That's my mm-hmm. wife. 
that's my son, you know, that's my neighbor. Because you're first really describing your your audience uh, in terms of what is a problem or challenge or aspiration that they have. With that, then of course, where demographics are relevant, then you can add those pieces. So you mm-hmm. might say, I work with those folks in Atlanta, or I, I work with those folks who are at the third act of their career, or, or you know, empty nesters, or women or men, or wh- whatever demographics that you want to add. This part is so important. And I just think people have been shaped over the years. You know how <laughs> it's like, we can say things so much as advice, even if it doesn't work and it's wrong, that it just generally becomes accepted. Like, oh yes, you have a business, so let's create the avatar, create the picture of exactly the characteristics of who you want to serve. And many times people do end up creating a specific person. And then they'll come to me saying, God, I feel really stuck because I don't only want to be serving Mm. 25-year-olds who live in Chicago who drive Priuses. You know, (laughs) and I say, well, let's back up a minute. Maybe that's (laughs) one audience member demographic, but really what are we getting at underneath that? Oh, they're they're first-time home buyers and they don't have great credit. And so they're worried about buying their first home. Okay, great. So from that perspective, we could have a bunch of different demographic ways that we could be serving people with that situation. But don't start with it. You know, you really could carve this in stone. Define your ideal customer by problem, challenge, or aspiration. It makes for a great discussion around the conference room table. And also it brought to mind uh, sales training in the past where you know, you're, you're introducing yourself like at a networking event or a cold call or whatever. D- don't say what you do. Talk about the problem you solve and try to put the pain point in there so that people can, like you said, say, oh, that's me. That's me. Yeah. So interesting. The, the, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how to go about finding the qualities and characteristics of people you know you want to work with obviously but the people you don't want to work with and that always seems to be helpful to say when i'm talking to a company and i'll say well who is it you don't want any more of who what kind of clients do you not want i usually get pretty quick answers there <laughs> could you talk a bit about that in terms of you know helping you to uh feel safe ruling out the kind of people you don't want to work with yeah it one place to look immediately is the work that you've done in the values section, because mm-hmm. that is a very clear way when you can just look at affective characteristics of people. You know, I, I don't want to work with crabby people or mm-hmm. really super cynical. I, I love people who are cynical and, and who think critically about things and want to analyze things from many different angles. I love that. I loved having that conversation. But if somebody fundamentally, for example, has an affective characteristic where they just are resistant to everything, that the first answer is just no, it's going to be really, really hard to do the work. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you can look at characteristics of values you might have with people. Those values can translate for some people in businesses into industries or types of businesses that you will or won't work with that are related to your own personal values or beliefs, but then also just what are the kinds of conditions and the characteristics of people who you know really bring out your very best. So I know I've learned through the years that I I love to work with funny, really smart people who literally believe that they can change the world with their work. It sounds so cheesy and the cynical people are all rolling your eyes simultaneously. But they're out there. They they exist. Yeah. Yes. And I love working with somebody like that who's 
really working to build a body of work that will solve real problems and really create the infrastructure of the future. So those are some of the ways that you can start to get clear of the characteristics of people. The other thing I found that's really important is where you can look from the perspective of, is this organization or business really ready to do the work? Do they have the resources? Do they have the leadership capability? You could have clients that are excited about doing some kind of a change of having a total graphic redesign of their entire branding and their business, but do they have the resources? Are they at a stage where they can actually leverage those resources in order to do that work effectively. The same can happen for a lot of folks that might be working in organizational development or leadership development, things like that. You need to make sure that the organization and the leadership accountability and and all of that is in place in which the work can actually take root and can happen. So sometimes you could look at a stage of business, you could look at a stage of where leaders are in their in their journey and their ability to be moving forward to do hard things because fundamentally no matter what it is that you're selling you are taking your customers on some kind of a transformational journey they're going from where they are to where they want to be and if they're anything like me they fight change <laughs> so you need to you need to make sure that you have conditions that will allow that change to happen that is so true. And you know what surprises companies when we're talking to them is we'll say, you know, it's, it's not completely about the cost of us helping you. We need your time. We need access to you. And that often is more of a stumbling block than the cost. Uh, and, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll start using the B word, brand, but they'll say, oh, I don't have the bandwidth. It's like, ooh, <laughs> we're trying to lead a transformation. That was one of my favorite parts of the book, though. When you talk about building an offer, and let me just, uh, quote that uh, bullet point, because as I told you, I'm, I'm enamored with his. <laughs> it's the third one. You write, the, Okay, listen, folks, this is one of the most important. You write, you have to craft offers your perfect customer can't refuse because they are the quickest, best, and most cost-effective way to solve their problem. And and that's what you started to talk on there. And I thought that was one of the most interesting things and a great reminder. And there was a book by uh, Tara Nicole Smith on the show a few years back ago called The Transformational Consumer. And in that book, she talks about how much more successful you will be, regardless of whether you're selling a hammer or a CRM or a, any kind of product or service, if you can understand the true transformation that they are seeking, even if they may not have articulated it to themselves. That's so important, and it seems like it's, again, like these other things we've talked about, they've been, they get skipped over so much. Maybe you could talk about the concept where you have to choose the exact part of the customer journey where your product or service fits and, and how that relates to creating the perfect offering. Can you explain that? That's uh, yeah. page 54 for those playing the home game. <laughs> yes. It is so interesting to me how each of these pieces really fit together in real life because when you have done a thoughtful job about recognizing that there's something in the world that you really can contribute something positive to, you can help solve a critical problem that a lot of people are willing to pay money to get solved. Usually it is impossible for you to solve every single part of it. It's not Mm -hmm. realistic. We know that businesses often can't survive if they just try to to build every single service, for example, that's necessary to help somebody with a change. One of the examples I used in the book was Intuit, which we know makes makes software and mm-hmm. accounting software. 
now they have an email service. They just bought MailChimp, but they, their mission statement is to power prosperity. And so if you look at that, that's a pretty large mission. And if you would imagine that many of their small business customers, if they were to be truly prosperous, they would need a lot of things. They would probably need some financial education. They may need money mindset work to clean up some of the stories that they've carried, sometimes for generations, about Mm -hmm. what they believe about money and what they deserve. They would need bank accounts, retirement accounts, probably a CPA. You can begin to see everything that would be involved in actually reaching the goal and that bigger mission of powering their prosperity. One portion of that would be accounting software or tax software that they would use, which this company provides. When you know that, when you can identify first, what is that change that somebody needs to make? I I did martial arts for many years, so I still hold on to my martial art metaphors, even though it's been Mm. a while since I put down my my MMA belt. Oh, and that explains why you're friends with uh, Christopher S. Penn. I saw him mentioned in the book. Yes, yes. Um, actually, it's more about marketing on that side. But yes, I have like anybody who's done martial arts or, or enjoys them is, is always a, a buddy of mine. But there's a there's a concept Bruce Lee talked about, about punching all the way through the bag, which I love when I think about, you know, if you really want to hit a target and you want to hit it with power, you have to punch all the way through it. That's where you're visualizing. Mm. And in the way that we know customers are in the journey in order to solve their problem, especially in the case of software, they might start, they might start to get it installed. They may begin to use use it, but if there are other parts of that journey that they need to fix, they get anxiety. They think, well, who am I to, you know, to think I can run the finances of my business and they have other things that need to be addressed. They will not complete that transformation. They often will not execute all the way through for the particular product or service, you know, that you're helping to create. So this is where, for me, I always look at it through my instructional design, performance, you know, management lens that I've looked at the world at for so many years. We really have to understand all the different changes that somebody needs to make and to be intelligent to figure out where is that part where you and your business could make the biggest impact and really address something that's going to help somebody to make that journey. And then also, I argue in the book, it's going to behoove you to be partnering with other people who are doing the other pieces, mm-hmm. because where you create more of a collaborative effort. I know for me as a business coach, I very often am working with CPAs and online business managers and graphic folks and branding agencies together with my client, because when we work together we all of us end up bringing them all the way across the bridge mm-hmm. of having their business that's in a much better state as a scaled business. So there's this a combination of you have to understand the total change that's happening for them. What are the steps they need to take? And then I think in an interesting way, where you find some of this market opportunity is where you find interesting ways to maybe address obstacles or parts of that journey that other companies have not done effectively. Mm, amen. And and that is the the part that most reminded me of some of the topics that were towards the end of uh, John Jance's book that I mentioned earlier. It's so interesting and it, for me it was a you know very uh, a new idea but it made so much sense it hurt. <laughs> so. I know. I've known John for so many years. He does such great work. And I, I know for both of us, like we live in the world of working with real customers. <laughs> They're right. paying money out of their own pockets. It, it tends to be. If, if it's a small business owner, they tend to be more the founders who yeah. don't have 
millions of dollars at their disposal from an anonymous corporate account, it, it really makes a difference if you're working with people to solve a problem and it, it is money that is well-earned and you really want to be strategic about how it's used. I just think you can't get away from looking at these areas um, if, if you're not looking at it that way. And just in the wonderful zeitgeist in the way that I know my world has always been of being friends with so many amazing people like John and others, we do listen and learn and get influenced by ideas and often end up working on on ideas simultaneously. It, 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 funnily enough, John and I didn't have any communication. We were both in our <laughs> caves writing. So I had no idea that he was even what, what he was working on or what he was writing. But it's really interesting and wonderful sometimes that you see this complementary kind of work that comes out. Yes. Now, Pamela Slim, you had me at the word watering holes. In bullet point four, you write, you need to connect to the right watering holes, places in person and online, where thousands of these ideal customers hang out. So I want to quote from page 76 and ask you to uh, explain a few things. You write, there's nothing I have seen that helps business owners grow more strategically and quickly than looking at their marketing through the lens of an ecosystem. So uh, this is the vocabulary section of the Marketing Book Podcast interview. So if you could. <laughs> yes, take out your pencils. Yes. Sharpen them. <laughs> could you, could you, Pamela Slim, define a couple of these terms that you, you talk about quite a bit, which is you know, ecosystem, obviously, what you mean by it, watering hole, which is not a bar, and uh, thought leadership. Yes. Yeah, so the, the term ecosystem I've heard for quite a while, especially in the software as a service space for companies that recognize that they might serve a similar customer and they do a lot of collaboration to solve that problem. In the context of small business owners and just really for either an individual who's looking to grow their business or for folks who are in a marketing capacity in a larger organization, you, in, in the, my definition of ecosystem, you center your ideal customer. And that's defined by whatever problem or challenge that they that they have. So they are, you know, looking to grow their business or um, whatever kind of problem that you're looking to for them to help them solve. They are already most likely looking around in a whole range of places, in person and online, for additional support, information, and resources to solve that problem. I have in the book a framework that are 10 different spokes of an ecosystem wheel. And so there are segments like who are other service providers that mm -hmm. they might work with to solve that problem? Are there associations they belong to? Are there media hubs that they subscribe to, places like your podcast or you know, YouTube channels, etc.? Are there influencers that they follow? Are there products that they use to solve that problem? They're already are a lot of places where people go for information um, and resources to solve their problems. So the ecosystem in this context is for you to really understand who are these other players, what role are they playing? And in some cases, you can just ask your customers, right? Who else are you working with or where do you go for information? And then um, it also can be where you can learn certain things if you know there are some great tools to help your client solve their problem. So you bring that to them. So the ecosystem is just surrounding organizations, resources, tools, places that help them solve a problem. A watering hole is a specific place in that ecosystem, in person or online, that where somebody else wonderful has taken the time 
to gather a big audience um, around that that area. I the the example I think originally came from an interaction I had years ago with my friend Guy Kawasaki, mm-hmm. as many people know, as the author of The Art of the Start and uh, Chief Evangelist of Canva, and. It, he, it was 2006, I think. I wrote a blog post called An Open Letter to CEOs Across the Corporate World. I, no joke, probably had 50 blog readers at that time. It was a brand new blog. It was my dad, my sister, my best friend, and a random person from Google that was watching it. I wrote this post. It was a bit of a swan song to all the corporate work I had done, telling employers how they needed to change or they would see a mass exodus. Can we say the great resignation, right? Mm. <laughs> 10 years later. So I, uh, I wrote that post. And on a whim one night, I shared it with Guy Kawasaki. I knew he had a really popular blog. I had never met him before. I, I thought he did amazing work. And back in 2006, his blog really was this amazing watering hole with Mm -hmm. all kinds of people following his work. So he ended up posting the post on his blog the next day. And I got this gigantic wave of interest. It was probably the, the, the first and only time I went totally viral. And it really showed me that here was me just connecting with one other person, but we were so aligned in terms of, you know, areas of interest, values. Of course, he had so much more experience than me at that time, but his audience was really my ideal audience too. And they really connected with me that way. So that concept of a watering hole is if you're really strategic in who you're connecting with and how, instead of just yelling into the internet and saying, hey, please come buy my stuff. (laughs) You can go places where somebody already has an audience and through that trust that's been built and through conversation, that's often where you can find one to many, lots of new audience members. Mm -hmm. And then thought leadership, again, that's like another term that I think people think they know, but explain how you explained it in the book. Yeah, so thought leadership to me is really just your specific point of view about how you think the problem should be solved. So if we're, you know, talking about solving bigger issues of helping small businesses grow and giving mm-hmm. them tools and information, my thought leadership, my point of view is look at ecosystems, build partnerships, right? Work together. That's a perspective that I might bring to the conversation that will provide a unique and hopefully valuable perspective that could be different and in many cases complementary to somebody else who might say focus on really good SEO and that's great advice but that person who has that expertise and that thought leadership is really sharing their point of view about how to solve the problem. Yes and you talk about the watering hole and Guy Kawasaki and that kind of takes us to bullet point five if I can read one more of these. (laughs) You have to build relationships with the, these people in a way that is respectful, inclusive, and that they don't find overbearing or creepy. So is what you did with Guy, is that an example of the concept in your book called seeding? Yeah, we should ask him so he can tell you. I mean, we, we've become good friends throughout the years, and I appreciate him so much. I know in in that in that kind of situation, it's it's the most awkward and nerve-wracking kind of thing to do where you might find somebody where you're like, oh, wow, this person really should know my work or I should really be on their podcast. It's a very vulnerable thing mm-hmm. in order to reach out. 
part of what I think is is an art is balancing a, a core concept that I talk about. If we if we really think of the first part of the book is really what's your strategic analysis so that you're very clear as to what are you doing and who are the other players there and where are the most strategic connections. The next part is really about how delicate and sensitive and discerning you want to be about how it is that you build those connections. In this case, it just have there's there's a bit of luck. I I sometimes to my credit and sometimes <laughs> to the embarrassment of my children, I'm not afraid to ask I'm not afraid to talk to anybody. I'm mm-hmm. not afraid to reach out to somebody, but I want to be respectful to pay attention to what they're talking about. In that case, I've been reading his blog religiously. I knew part of what he was talking about. I that I thought he would be interested in this. And so when I pitched it to him, I was very human. I just expressed, you know, how much I appreciated his work. But I the way I said it was, I wrote this and it just made me think of you in the way that I know your work and I wanted to share it. I didn't say, would you please post it on your blog tomorrow? Mm-hmm. It happened to be my luck that at that moment, he was at his email, it was 10 o'clock at night, he, he was at his email, he read it, he liked it, he actually responded back, the original post just had four points, and he said, can you make this a top 10? Because he loves to do everything in top 10. And I said, sure. And so like, I finished the post, I wrote the other six points till one o'clock in the morning, and then I sent it over to him, and then that's when he published it. We had a conversation about it later, because it really was just one of these cosmic things that happen sometimes where right place, right time, I connected with a bigger audience. And then I think that was kind of the the initial kind of kickoff point where my profile began to grow and that attracted Penguin Portfolio, my first publisher, to to publish the book. And so Guy and I actually did a, a panel at South by Southwest um, the year that the book came out that was like blog to book. And somebody in the audience was saying, well, how do you do it? How do you get the attention of somebody who's really busy and influential? And he said, a lot of people think that I have the golden touch, meaning, you know, the Midas touch of everything I touch turns to gold. Uh-huh. He said, I only touch gold. Yes. <laughs> so that goes to my ongoing mantra about body of work. And it's not so much just what are the words you use to reach out and connect with somebody, but what are you building? Again, because you're being really discerning and sharing a particular point of view about how to solve a problem and maybe create content that's really good. How are you contributing something so that if you happen to get the precious attention of somebody really busy and famous, that when they look at it, they say, oh, but this is actually pretty good. Let me spend another couple minutes leaning in. Uh, that said, it is it really in, in the long game, when you look at the amount of seeds that you have to plant, when I look myself at, at the kinds of relationships that I have and how long it took to really develop trust, you're going to have far more misses than you have connections, right? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes things just happen and it's beautiful and just appreciate it but don't count on it. <laughs> You're going to get a lot more situations where you write a heartfelt email and it's completely ignored. Yes. I think this sort of seating or outreach is, is done in a very ham-fisted way and it's very irritating and we see a lot of it. You know, make up your own LinkedIn connection joke. But when you reached out to him, you did it with a knowledge of him uh, and yeah. you did it uh, in a very human way, but there was also some gratitude I mean, it's almost as if you didn't if you didn't hear back from him, that's fine, but you were sort of 
uh, thanking him. In the book, it's very clear you're not talking about those kinds of people that are – I mean, you probably get emails every day from people saying, hey, can we uh, post something on your website and get a uh, follow link back? It's like oh, – Scores of them, just over and over and over. Yeah. And you know, I still try to be relational with it because most of the time, these are probably very poorly paid <laughs> business development folks, and I say, thanks so much. I don't actually – you know, do that on my blog, but I appreciate your your outreach. Mm-hmm. And very often, those that kind of person is very appreciative of that. But that's an example where there's literally no relationship. And the funniest thing is they're like, I write about cleaning products for people who work in companies, you know, and here I am for 15 years writing about startups and and small business. So very often, they're very poorly researched. And there's something about immediately the first time that you meet somebody of reaching out and asking for something that just is not the way that we operate as humans. I just don't think we would do that if you and I met for the first time we had never corresponded and I just knew you had this great podcast that could benefit me and I just said hey Doug it's great to meet you could I be on your podcast you would probably look across the room at your wife who I've learned right is also named Pam yes. and just try as quickly as possible to give the secret signal where you say please come get me because I need to get away from this person right like we don't operate that way in real life so don't do it in business our job at seating happens a long time before you actually ask for something of someone yes yes well of course my wife Pam would say you have a podcast What is it you do, actually? I hear that a lot. Let's move on. There was a a term in your book I hadn't seen before, but I loved it, a TMA. Tell us what a TMA is. A TMA was my funny little play on TMI. In in doing work with clients, and as you can tell, there's a theme here, which is that I'm an author practitioner. I, I write about what I actually use. And one of the amazing clients that I work with, Carly Cunningham, who I actually tell her story all the way through the book, mm-hmm. who's a, a brand strategist in Vancouver, Canada. When I first started working with her, we had known each other in uh, in the past, um, and so I was familiar with her. But just she was at one of those weird stages of business that happens for any of us who have been in the game for a long time, which is just she had had a bunch of work. She was doing really great work for her clients, but then she hadn't been doing the kinds of seating activities that one needs to, so that when her projects were over, it just converged where there was just not a lot of new prospects coming in. And of course, that is scary. It creates anxiousness. And so I was just thinking of what is the way that I can just make tasks as small and easy as possible. And so it just came to me one day of just calling them tiny marketing actions, talking about the zeitgeist. I didn't even realize there's the BJ Fogg had a book called Tiny Actions. So like I, I discovered that a long time after. Um, it, James Clear, who I reference all the time, who wrote Atomic Habits, mm-hmm. uh, provides so much of the research behind from a habit formation perspective. It's actually so much better to be doing things in really tiny, small steps. And so looking at some of that and, and just recognizing that I didn't want to overwhelm my client I we just started to implement this idea of tiny marketing actions. So we got really specific about who were the best people to connect with through this ecosystem analysis. She did consistent outreach, and Carly is a very disciplined person. Like if she has a task to do, she will do it all the way through. And she actually bought a journal for herself 
every day she'd put in her tiny marketing actions and give herself gold stars when she did them, which I loved. Like it was really immediately getting that reinforcement. Uh-huh. Um, and so through the years, we've, we've worked together through many different stages of her business now. But it's fascinating as an analytical person, she's actually shown me spreadsheets of looking at when she was actively implementing tiny marketing actions and looking at the at the implications about how many incoming leads were coming, how many months after those tiny marketing actions, what was her overall, you know, revenue and profitability. It's so interesting how there's really a direct correlation. And I think we often think about marketing in terms of huge initiatives. So I yes. need to completely rebrand my website and do a huge launch and hire a gigantic team or an agency. I have nothing against hiring teams. So that's not the point. The point is there are a lot of things you can do if you are strategic in how you're building really small connections consistently. Yes, it's a game of inches. Let me just ask two other quick questions about the book, uh, the concepts. And one of them is about sales and one is about uh, partnerships. And then we'll wrap up. Bullet point eight, you have to know how to sell to these customers who we've discussed, in a way that feels easy and aligned and valuable to you and them. I want to quote from page 170. You write, Developing into an effective salesperson is possible for those of you who have always told yourself, I am allergic to sales, or I never want to turn into one of those manipulative and pushy salespeople. And you go on to write, I used to feel this way too until mentors showed me a way to sell that was in alignment with my skills and strengths. What were some of the things that you learned from these folks? I I mentioned Skip Miller in the book. He was a client of mine uh, a whole number of years ago and I've worked with him on some projects. It was so transformational for me to work with somebody who taught selling for a living and his method was so powerful to me because instead of feeling like what my incorrect perception was that selling was really about pushing and just pushing somebody in order to make a decision. He talked really a lot about the structure of sales and his premise within proactive selling and a lot of his other books is that you really want to align your sales process with the natural way that people buy. (laughs) That's what a concept. Right? Like, I mean, imagine that once again, centering your customer. So, you know, anytime somebody wants to buy something, we know what they're going to do. He often uses the example of a car. You know, you think you want a car, you start to look around, you research a little bit on the internet, talk to your friends, you might visit a dealership, go for a test drive, you know, figure out your dollars and cents, talk with your spouse if you need to. So, there is a natural process that people go through. So when you're just matching your sales process and the information required at each stage, that's what feels so natural and organic. And there's a lot of really specific things. It's one of these examples of you can learn something that just you take with you for the rest of your life. I, that's that's the gift that Skip has given me that is just paid over and over again. The same thing is what I feel about learning the, the skill of instructional design. Like in so many different ways, I use that over and over. And so once you you get that, you you begin to realize, oh, no, what I'm doing is I'm just being effective. I'm being organized. I'm helping somebody to make a decision. And another tidbit that I learned from Skip is your goal is not to make a sale. Your goal is to help people to make a decision, yes or no, without delay. Mm-hmm. Because as he says, yeses are great, noes are great, maybes will kill you. Yes. And just ask any anybody in business. <laughs> yes. One of my favorite uh, lines uh, I hear sales, uh, good salespeople say is, no is my second favorite word. Yes. <laughs> I love that. That's great. So the last thing I wanted to ask about was uh, the partnerships. And 
this is obviously you know, central to ecosystems. You write, uh, over time as you scale, you need to build partnerships with trustworthy allies that allow you to grow without exhausting yourself in the process. I want to read from page 192 and ask you to elaborate more on this because I think this may be really misunderstood. You write, unfortunately, most business partnerships are formed in a casual, transactional way. In the moment, working together always sounds like it has nothing but upside. But over time, you often begin to regret your split-second decision-making. Ecosystem partnerships cannot be transactional. They must exist on a sturdy foundation of research, communication, and experience. A partner with a strong brand and an excellent reputation in their community should never risk that reputation to partner with an unvetted person or organization. Could you say more about what folks are getting wrong about partnerships and maybe remind them of the transformative power of them? Yeah, partnerships are so powerful and they also can be so hard. Just ask anybody who's built their business that way or has had long-term, long-term partnerships. We see this really going directly back to some of the early work about mission and values because mm-hmm. it is essential from the perspective of a customer. And this is scary, but true. So let's scare people for a second and then make them feel better. Okay. <laughs> you're you're yeah, scaring people. This is a people. chapter that said you, like, you had a cautionary tale, I think. Yes. I had a couple of cautionary tales. Yes. It, 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 you can build tremendous brand equity, credibility, and trust with customers who love you deeply. And then you can make a decision to partner with somebody where you have not taken the time to really explore the truth of not just what they say their values are, but how they actually operate. And if you haven't done due diligence, so much credibility and trust can be lost where a partner who you have introduced to your community comes in and and does something harmful or out of alignment. Mm. And so that's the scary part of like the stakes are really big. The, the part that to me is worth it always in the end is where you have built that trust, where you're very open and clear with your customers and where stuff happens, which by the way, it always does. And very often not with any kind of ill intent. I don't think people wake up saying, how can I destroy the trust and you know credibility of this partner that I'm working with? But if that happens, you want to be addressing things as clearly and concretely as you can, right? Learning the lesson, looking at some of these good practices that we see where, you know, just over time, it's impossible for companies, leadership, communities to never have issues, to never make mistakes. We need to really build practices that allow you to recover from that. But the process of really discovering a partnership, the side of it that can be very transactional is you have a bunch of customers and you can get me a bunch of money. And so let's do a deal. And just really looking at it from that lens of like, oh, I want to work with this person because they're the quickest path to money and I know they can sell my stuff. And if you're not, I know I'm, I'm you know, reducing it a little bit, but a lot of it when, you, when it comes down to it, you have not really thought about all these overall implications. And I think over time, you're always looking for the alignment of a partner that can really help you. You can help them and you can, you can do shorter term projects, but you need to be really clear about exactly how you're partnering and what the rules of the game are. Yes. And I seem to recall there was an attorney you interviewed who said, get everything written down. But also, (laughs) Pamela, I think some of the horror stories in that chapter really did get my attention. 
I mean, there were some there. It's wor- It's that ninja mind trick of yours again. See what happens when you've written enough of these books. You start anyway. <laughs> yes. Well, it yeah. is, and and I mean, there. These are real stories that my colleague shared. I kept oh. confidential for obvious reasons to protect everybody. But there are some horror stories. People who were just taken for hundreds of thousands of dollars oh. by by partners who said they were doing one thing and did another. Um, there are. A lot of situations that can be really difficult. And honestly, I think that's why a lot of folks might be, you know, scared about it. So for any kind of partnering or or collaboration or co-marketing, things like that, I always recommend start really small, start slowly, build a relationship over time, really check out, you know, what they're doing and how they're doing it. And if things happen, which they always do, it's okay, right? Address it, have a productive conversation. If you need to part ways, that's fine. I don't think it has to be where all of a sudden everybody is cast out as an enemy, but you have to be really, really discerning and thoughtful about protecting the space of your customers because they're everything about what makes your business successful. Yes, I, I really got a lot out of that chapter, and maybe because I haven't read about uh, about that, but also it's it's extremely, like so many, there's very, very practical things that you should be doing to maybe take a little bit more of a sober approach to partnerships because they really can help you, but they have to be more than what you say, uh, a casual transactional sort of thing. So, Pam, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I hope that you see the power of instead of just trying to call everybody to you through your marketing campaigns, keep them going, nothing wrong with them, but look for the watering holes. Look for places where wonderful people have already taken time and energy to collect who you define as ideal people in a community. And so when you connect with somebody in a watering hole, it is one to many as opposed to one one to one. Yes, yes. Great answer. Let's give the listener one thing they could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book and get them started until the book arrives after they've ordered it. Look for a peanut butter and jelly partner. And what that is, is in the, your ecosystem. So as you look at your ideal client, mm-hmm. uh, and that's whether you're a small, medium, or large company, ask them, who is another company or service provider that you work with who you love? What you want to discover in these highly complimentary peanut butter and jelly partnerships is somebody who, who provides a complimentary but non-competitive service or product mm-hmm. to your customer and then reach out and do one of these 15-minute get-to-know-you-very-specific, like, I heard great things from you. Tell me a little bit more about what you do and where you begin to sense that maybe there's some opportunity there to do things together. That can be an immediate flood of connections because what I find with a lot of my clients, for example, if they're, you know, I often refer people to CPAs, those CPAs who share values with me have a whole other set of clients that I don't know. I have a whole other set of clients that need a CPA who they don't know. So even with that small step, it can make a big difference. Yes, I give get another example in my world. Uh, you know, we're in the marketing business. Sales trainers or sales consultants are sort of a PB and J for us, where. They're not doing what we do, and we can't really succeed if a company doesn't have their sales game squared away. So it's it works together very nicely. What books have most inspired Pamela Slim's work and career? Two in particular. I love Guy Kawasaki, as you know, as a person, as a human, but I also love The Art of the Start. I, mm-hmm. I really enjoy the structure of the book, the way that it's just so d- deeply steeped in 
and mission, but also really wise marketing advice. And so that's always a favorite on my shelf. Mm -hmm. The other one as a writer is Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. When I was writing my first book, Escape from Cubicle Nation, I had those many moments of imposter syndrome of like, who am I? I'm not a writer. I just write a blog. And and I carried that book around with me everywhere I went. And I would just flip open to a page and she's both inspiring and hilarious. And I feel like that book got me through writing my first book and through the other two as well. Oh, wow. I don't think I know that one. I appreciate you mentioning that. I should also say Guy Kawasaki is one funny dude. He is he is hilarious. I know. I love him very much. And if anyone has a chance to see him speak live, it's very entertaining too. So I have to ask Pamela Slim this because you know like every author who's been on my podcast. So, uh, you know, authors know about other books. Are there other, any other recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to, to reading? Yes, I know. I imagine you probably know, and I've had Dory Clark on your show in the past. I love her latest book, The Long Game. Mm-hmm. She and I did a LinkedIn Live talking about my book, but when I was reading, actually, I listened to her audiobook, and I also got the hard copy I was reading. There is so much parallel with the way that she creates a very clear framework for how you really need to be thinking in the long game about really creating a very effective and powerful, you know, presence. And mm-hmm. it just felt, I felt like I could breathe a sigh of relief for the people who just want instant results. I think she makes a strong case for how it is that you slowly and effectively really build your credibility and, and build your business. And the other one is, is my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Fields, who just wrote a book called Sparked. And it's based on a Sparkotype, which is an assessment that, that he rolled out must now be almost a couple of years ago that's had over 500,000 folks who have taken it. But it's really interesting for, I think, everybody I've talked to and their brother, neighbors, friends, colleagues, business owners are going through a bit of an existential crisis right now. I think, you know, between the economy and COVID and all of that, a lot of people are, are you know, really feeling out of sorts. And yes. so this, the sparked really, when you, t- you can take the assessment and then really just learn more about like, how are you actually wired? What are, what are some of your unique strengths? What are ways that you can show up that can help you to both choose the kind of work that's the more deeply meaningful. And I think also on the leadership side, which I apply very much to marketing. I think there's so much leadership in marketing where when you really understand what your unique gifts are, you can implement that and, and really share in a way that's, that's much more powerful. And if you're just trying to be somebody else or trying everybody else's techniques. So that, that's a great resource. And the book came out in both came out actually on the same day, September 21st. Um, that sparked and the long game. Oh, yeah. Well, I did interview Dory about the long game, which got her into the marketing book podcast for Timers Club, which uh, is very exclusive because now she gets discount coupons at Taco Bell. It sounds like it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Very, very exclusive. And uh, Jonathan Fields' book sounds very interesting. And you know what? I saw him speak at a conference in um, Scottsdale years ago. Thanks for mentioning those two. And at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable for this episode's website page, all the books that you and I have both mentioned, your site, uh, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. And uh, to the listener, if you would, please reach out to Pamela and thank her for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Authors love to hear from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. And um, as you may have gotten the impression Pamela might actually respond to you. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I like people. It really helps. And yeah. being a connector that I, I genuinely appreciate it when people reach out. It yeah. makes me happy. So, and uh, to the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast or your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. One final quote from page 244. As I can attest, the widest net method provides a proven method for identifying your best customers, discovering where they congregate, and connecting with them in a natural way that builds authentic and enduring relationships. There is nothing theoretical or magical about the widest net method. I developed it by working directly with individuals and entrepreneurial groups around the country. I've seen it generate new partnerships, expand markets and customers, and raise the thought leadership brand for countless clients. And if you're a bottom line sort of person, I've witnessed the widest net method generate millions of dollars of new revenue. Applied diligently, it works. The book is The Widest Net, Unlock Untapped Markets and Discover New Customers Right in Front of You. The author is Pamela Slim. Pamela, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.